Okay. You can go ahead and be turning to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. And while you're finding your place, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in church. We thank you for your word that we have to study, to learn from, to grow by. And we just pray, Lord, ask you, Lord, that you would be with us and uh, work in our hearts and draw us near to you. Help us, Lord, to be a light and a witness in this place that you've put us in. I ask you, Lord, that you be with our service today, that you guide and direct my thoughts and my words, that the things that I say would be uh, uh, helpful and needful and accurate. Lord, we just pray, ask you that you be with those who are still on their way out this morning. I pray that you'd be with those who are unable to join us, be it traveling or work or whatever. And Lord, I just ask your special blessings on those who have who have came out, Lord, that you would just uh, work in their hearts exactly that which is needed. Lord, we just thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for loving us, Lord. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've <laughs> been getting a, an amen from the next room. Okay. That's a good one. <laughs> okay, so Acts chapter 21. And what we've been looking at is uh, Paul was making his way back to Jerusalem. And as he was going there, he was uh, taking the offering that had been collected amongst the Gentiles uh, the Gentiles had the Gentile believers had heard that the Christians in uh, Jerusalem had been under persecution. There had been a famine in the land. Uh, they had been basically made outcast by their countrymen to where uh, it was hard for them to uh, to work for them to provide for themselves, and so there was a lot of distress amongst the Jewish believers. And so the Gentiles said, we want to help them. And they gave generously, abundantly, in order to assist those Jews that were in Jerusalem. This was especially uh, important to Paul because he had once been a persecutor of the Christians, and he was part of the reason why uh, the the Jewish Christians uh, were in such a state. So I think some of it was maybe guilt. Some of it was an effort to make amends. But anyway, he had taken up this collection. He was bringing it back to Jerusalem. And it wasn't just uh, bringing the collection that he wanted to come uh, back to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was his city. It was his people. He had been raised in Jerusalem. Uh, He had been around the the Jewish system. He had went to the temple. He had been all these different things. And so he was going back to a familiar place after spending years ministering amongst the Gentiles. And I think uh, most of us can relate to that, just the idea of uh, of visiting home again, okay? And uh, so that's why another reason he was wanting to go back to Jerusalem. But also he was coming back to give an update of what all he had been doing, what all God has been doing through him in the regions of the Gentiles there at Jerusalem. He was doing that for the sake of accountability, but he was also doing that for the sake of unity. He wanted to unify the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. Jesus never intended there to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. He said that he was going to, uh, in the one passage that we were in uh, a couple weeks ago in John, he said that he was the shepherd and that he had a flock that they didn't know of, and he was going to bring them together and make them one flock and one shepherd. That was the Jews and the Gentiles together. And so Paul had this burden to unify the believers. He wanted the, to be a blessing to the Jewish believers. He wanted them to be open to the Gentile believers. And so he had a, a great burden for his people. On top of that, he was trying to be back by the day of Pentecost. And that was a feast, a festival that was going on in Jerusalem that was important to the Jews, but it was also important to the Christians because that was when the Holy Spirit first came. That was whenever uh, the thousands were saved. Peter preached his first message. That was really the birth of the church. And so all of these things were coming together, and Paul wanted to be in Jerusalem at that time. But everywhere that he was going, every stop that he made along the way on his journey back to Jerusalem, there were people who were meeting him and saying uh, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, that this journey was going to be to his hurt, that he was going to end up being uh, in prison. He was going to end up being uh, in a place of suffering and things because of this trip. And so he was being uh, warned by the believers, don't go to Jerusalem. But knowing Paul and all the things that we find written of Paul in Scripture, Paul was led by the Holy Spirit. God was leading him 
where he would have him to go. And from the very beginning of Paul's uh, walk with the Lord, the Lord revealed to him that he was going to suffer great things for the cause of Christ and that he was going to be a witness to kings and to leaders and to dignitaries and such. And so Paul uh, knew that this was his lot. He knew that this was God's will for his life. And God was preparing Paul for it, letting him know ahead of time what was going to happen so Paul would be able to mentally and spiritually prepare. But God was also preparing the believers as well because how much would it shake their faith to see their hero of the faith, their their mentor, uh, to see him arrested and put in jail and treated as some kind of a, a criminal or an evildoer. And so God was preparing them and letting them know what was going to happen ahead of time. So whenever it did happen, that they wouldn't lose faith. Okay. And so Paul, even though uh, even the people who loved him, even other believers was trying to discourage him, he continued going onward and doing what he knew God wanted him to do. And that was a huge lesson for us because we, we like to think that, you know, Christians want what's best for us and Christians are going to encourage us to serve the Lord. But a lot of times the things that God would have us to do is not going to be understood by those who are around us, even believers, even people who are serving God. And so we have to know what God's will for our life is. We have to be seeking and following him first because there's going to be times in your life that even Christians will discourage you, yes. let alone the unbelievers. Okay, And I, I use the example just of our, our own life, mine and Les, is that there are lots of believers back in the States that don't want us here. They would rather have us there. They want us near them. They want us uh, to be able to you know, be around them. And so they've encouraged us to disobey God's will for their will. But we have to choose to do what we know God wants us to do. And we know that God has brought us here. We know it's God's will for us to be here. And so though they may uh, cause us pain and they may cause us some stress, we have to say, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I'm going to follow God rather than men. And so this is what Paul was doing. He says, what mean you to weep and to break mine heart? He says, I'm going to do what God has told me to do and quit discouraging me from doing what God has told me to do. Okay, And now we have to make sure that what we're doing is what God wants us to do and not just what we want to do. Because there's plenty of people that will say, well, uh, I think God wants me to do this and it's really their own flesh. And then whenever someone would try to counsel or try to discourage them from doing their own thing in the name of God, then they would use something like this to justify themselves and to ignore counsel. Okay? Mm -hmm. Just as a, an illustration... Okay, I don't know, maybe I should say this, maybe I shouldn't, but um, years ago, the church that we attended in the States uh, was without a pastor, and there was a preacher that was within that church. He was an evangelist that traveled around to different churches, and he was one of the ones that people assumed would take the pastor of the church, but he says, no, it's not God's will for me to be the pastor there, and so they said, okay, we're not even consider you then since you said that's not God's will. And then later on, he came back and he says, I want to be considered. And they said, no, you said it wasn't God's will. And so he was using God as an excuse for his own will. Mm -hmm. And anyway, that caused problems. Yeah. And so anyway, we don't use God as an excuse, but we know that Paul was walking closely with God. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but Paul would be foolish to go headlong into Jerusalem against God's will, knowing that suffering was going to come just because he wanted to go to Jerusalem. I don't think anyone in their right mind is going to do that with full knowledge, full revelation that uh, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, he's going to suffer. He's not going to go and say, I don't care what God says, I don't care what everybody else says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to get imprisoned. No. That would be done. This is, um, to add on that, it's just clicking my mind, it's like, play with me. It's like uh, I'm planning to go home for visit for certain reason and people tell me if you come today that will be your end and they tell me okay I still have to go yeah you're going to fly somewhere and they say that plane's going to crash gonna I don't crash. care I'm going to go anyway yeah yeah you wouldn't do that would you no but anyway um, sorry that made me think of a uh, a guy got on a plane and whatever he got on he was the only one on the plane. And he asked one of the flight attendants and said, how is it that I'm the only one on this plane? And she said, well, 
there was a psychic convention that uh, was to be meeting, and this plane was going to be carrying all the people to the psychic convention, and they all canceled last minute. He said, oh, lucky me. That's not lucky. Not lucky. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, that, that was just a, yeah. a silly illustration. But as Paul is going toward Jerusalem, he's being warned everywhere uh, not to go. And then whenever he finally does get to Jerusalem, the first thing that he does is he goes to the leaders, the elders of the church that is in Jerusalem, and no doubt he hands over this offering that he and all of the other, all of his entourage, that I've been calling them, all of these other uh, representatives from the churches in the Gentile regions, he hands over this offering that they had collected, gives it to the church there at Jerusalem, and we don't have any record of them handing it over, uh, of how it was received, of anything that would even hints at gratitude or thanksgiving for this offering, which I think is a shame. The Gentiles have went above and beyond because we know that the Jews hate the Gentiles, but the Gentiles weren't too fond of the Jews. And so for the Gentile Christians to be this generous toward the Jews, it shows a marked change in their attitudes toward one another. And so the Gentile Christians were willing to give sacrificially to help these people that they knew hated them. And so that was a huge thing, and it's just glossed over. It's not even... Uh, really anything said about it in Scripture, and it seems to indicate, or at least this is the way I look at it, that the church at Jerusalem uh, was ungrateful. Okay? You all get that? That there's no, no sign whatsoever. They're like, oh, the Gentiles did this for us? And so anyway, he then proceeds to give an account of everything that had been happening. He goes back through, and it it uses the word here, uh, I believe, particularly. And so what he is saying is he's going through item by item, stop by stop, everything that they had accomplished in the Gentile regions. As they went through the, the region of Asia, as they went through uh, Greece and Macedonia and all of those places in Europe. And so he was recounting the, the people who have believed the miracles that God had performed amongst them, uh, the churches that were formed, the elders that were presiding over the churches that had uh, shown the ability and the leadership capacity to, to lead those churches, and the change that had taken place. Imagine him talking about the church that was at Ephesus, at basically the center of all kinds of demonic and paganism and all these things, the worship of Diana and prostitution, and these believers came out of that and became Christians, and their lives were transformed. And going to Corinth, and of course the Jews hated the the Gentiles because of their uh, uncleanness, because of their carnality, because of their sinfulness, their wickedness, their paganism. And as Paul is recounting, and he's telling about how God transformed the lives of these believers and turned them from idols to serve the true and living God, turned them from their wickedness, their paganism, their sexual immorality, and brought them and made them decent Christians, decent human beings. And this would have been exciting, and I can imagine Paul beaming as he's talking about all of these people that he loves, that he has given so much time and so much effort to. And really, it seems like the, the Jewish Christians were a lot less excited than Paul was. Have you ever been really excited about something and try to tell about it, the person you're telling was just completely disinterested. A lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we've all experienced that. Mm -hmm. And so Paul was excited about this. This is what he was giving his life for. He was talking about the times that he had been beaten, but God used that for his glory and all of these different things. And the Jerusalem believers are sitting there. They're listening to all of it. And whenever he finishes, they give God the glory. That's a good thing. They give God the praise. And they're like, that's wonderful. We're glad God's working over there, but. And so whenever they get to this place, and this is all still review. Yeah. But anyway, whenever they get to this place, uh, they tell Paul, we're glad for what God's doing over there amongst the Gentiles, but he's working amongst the Jews too. And we've got thousands of Jews here that have become Christians, but they are still zealous of the law. Okay. So he says, you might have Gentiles that have been converted. They're no longer paganism, 
But we'll do one up on you. We've got Jews that are still zealous of the law. They're even better than your Gentiles. That's kind of messed up, isn't it? And so I can imagine Paul was thinking, I'm going to bring this uh, offering here. I'm going to tell about all these evidences that God has accepted the Gentiles and God is doing the work amongst the Gentiles. The Jews are going to be excited about it and it's going to bring unity between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers and there won't be division in the church and there's going to be a healing that takes place uh, between these people groups and whatnot. And at this point, Paul loses hope in it. And he says, or he feels basically... That's not going to happen anymore. And so what uh, what the elders there at Jerusalem propose that Paul does, they said, we have heard, there's been rumors that are going around that you are teaching the Jews that are in the Gentile territories to no longer be Jews. You're teaching them to abandon their culture, to uh, abandon their identity, to quit, sacrifice, or, excuse me, quit circumcising their children, uh, quit keeping the laws and all of these things. And so the Jews, which are zealous of the law, don't like you and don't like your work amongst the Gentiles. So rather than us uh, correcting this, rather than us taking a stand and saying, we've talked to Paul and all of these things that you're hearing is untrue, Paul, we want you to uh, submit yourself to this unnecessary ceremony to prove to all of the Jews that the things that they're hearing is false. And so what they want Paul to do, he said, we've got men here who have made a Nazarite vow. We want you to go purify yourself at the temple. We want you to be seen at the temple with these men. We want you to offer up sacrifices, pay for their sacrifices there at the temple. And here's the thing. All of these things were unnecessary. Jesus was the final sacrifice. There was no need for further sacrifices. He was the fulfillment of the law, and so there was no need for them to continue going through all these unnecessary ceremonies. On top of this, the temple was obsolete. The temple was obsolete. There was no longer a need for the temple because the temple's purpose was for there to be a, a place that they could offer up sacrifices to God and a place where God could meet with mankind. And the temple was made obsolete in Christ because now as Christians, we are the temple of God. God resides in us. The final sacrifice has been made. And so whenever Jesus died, the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. It was torn in two, signifying that God had made a way to reconcile himself to mankind and the temple is no longer needed. Okay? But they said, Paul, if you'll do this, the Jews will see, the Jewish believers will see that you're still zealous of the law. And then also maybe it will give us a little bit of peace amongst the Jews that surround us here because they see that even as a Christian, even as, you know, the apostle to the Gentiles, you, Paul, are still respecting the Jewish law and the Jewish traditions and Jewish ceremonies. And so what we would expect you know, going by the way that we would respond, we are expecting Paul to say, no, that's stupid. Why would I do that? We know that the temple is obsolete. We know that Jesus is the last sacrifice. We know that God does command these vows to be taken. And why should I do this? But that's not what Paul does. Instead, Paul says, if this is going to help to bridge the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles, if this is going to help these people to not be offended, if this is going to make me more uh, more effective in my ministry and in my witness to these people, then I'm perfectly willing to make a sacrifice. I'm perfectly willing to inconvenience myself in order to further the gospel, in order to help weaker believers. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge lesson for us. Rather than him staking his rights and saying, you know, I've got these rights in Christ. I've got all these things going on. He says, I'm perfectly willing to become all things to all men that by all means I may win some. Okay. So he says, if I have to go through all of these unnecessary things in order to be effective in my witness to my people, then it's become necessary, right? And so he willingly subjects himself to it. And so we come down to verse number 27. And this is when Paul goes ahead. He, he's purifying himself. He's going through all these uh, things. In verse 27, and when the seven days were almost ended. So he's going in and out of the temple. He's doing these different things. Seven days. 
The Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the people was moved, and they and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the and when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art not thou that Egyptian, which before these days madest an uproar and ledest out into the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers? But Paul said, I am a man, which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, okay, there's a great place for a chapter break, right? <laughs> but we'll stop there with the chapter break. But anyway, as we see in this passage, Paul is going about the purification process. He's uh, following what James has required or requested of him. And we need to understand a little bit about what's going on in Jerusalem at this time. This was during the Feast of the Pentecost. Okay, This was not long after Passover, and the city of Jerusalem was filled with plenty of people who had traveled there for this festival. Uh, the city of Jerusalem had multitudes around. If you think about Pentecost, uh, you look back at Acts chapter number two, I believe it is. Whenever uh, the Holy Spirit first came, there were people who were abiding in Jerusalem from all nations. Well, this is happening again at this time. There are people abiding in Jerusalem from all nations. There are crowds, there's multitudes that are gathering. And on top of that, they are there for a religious reason, so they are extra zealous during this time. So if you think about it from this context, uh, most Christians become a little bit more zealous around Christmas time, right? Mm -hmm. Around Easter, because these are times that uh, remember Jesus, celebrate Jesus and things, and so people become a little bit more zealous about their faith during these times. Uh, if nothing else, you think about uh, things that's been on the news in recent years about how they are, uh, you know, the whole thing, they're taking Christ out of Christmas and Christians are up in arms about that. And they're wanting to go out and be uh, defensive or offensive because of these things, right? They are becoming more zealous around the holidays, right? And so with the Jews, they're going to be more zealous because this is the time of Pentecost, because this is a festival, because they are all together from all these different places. And all of this surrounds the temple. So what uh, James and the elders of the Jerusalem church have done is they have requested that Paul, a Christian, and a, a the apostle to the Gentiles, basically go into the middle of the Jewish temple whenever the Jews are gathered from all nations, whenever they are zealous, when they are worked into a frenzy, Basically, they are sending him right into the epicenter, okay? They've already sought to kill him in Jerusalem before, but now, in a way, I think it was foolish for James and the leaders of the church to tell Paul to go to the temple at this time, okay? So there's people from all areas that are there, and it says specifically that the Jews which were of Asia, that's where Paul had been ministering. 
More than likely, these were people from Ephesus because they recognized Trophimus, who was an Ephesian. And so Paul is running around with Trophimus. Some of these uh, these Jews, these unbelievers from Ephesus or from Asia, recognize Trophimus, know that he's not a Jew, see Paul running around with him, and they assume that Paul took him beyond the court of the Gentiles and allowed a Gentile to trespass into the area of the temple that was only for the Jews. Okay, It says in verse number 29, they supposed. That means they assumed. All of their accusations were without merit. Paul was not stupid, and he was not offensive. He was not disrespectful to the place where he would have brought a Gentile into the temple. On top of that, there are other... uh, there are other arguments against him, their gripes against him, is that he teaches all men. That would be a big task, wouldn't it? For Paul to teach all men everywhere against the Jews, against their laws, against their teachings, against their traditions, and against this holy place. So he says that Paul is going throughout the entire world telling the whole world that they need to turn against the Jews. That he is inciting riot, he's inciting genocide. He's Basically, they're saying that he's Hitler. Okay? They're saying that Paul is teaching all men everywhere that the Jewish law, the custom, the people were wrong, were horrible. Okay? It says that he teacheth all men everywhere against this people, the law, and this place. And so he is going out and he is speaking against our people. He's speaking against our traditions. He's speaking against our religion everywhere he goes. And so the way that they're presenting this to the Jewish people is that this man is trying to annihilate the Jewish people, that he is public enemy number one, that Paul is doing nothing but going around and bad-mouthing the Jews, which we've been reading about what Paul is doing, and he's doing nothing of the sort. He's going around and he is preaching the gospel to all people. Okay? And so everything that's been brought against him is false accusations. And because these Jews that had um, brought these accusations against Paul, because the people were zealously affected, because they were very nationalistic at this time and everything, they said, we've got to do something about this man. We've got to silence him. These were probably the same people who had stirred up the riot in Ephesus. Remember that several weeks ago? And Paul was in Ephesus, and they brought up and stirred up the riot and brought all the people against him. There were people, there were Jews that rejected Jesus, and they hated Paul, and they tried to get rid of him in Asia. And now they had a home court advantage or home field advantage. They said if we couldn't kill him there... We surely can whenever there's all of these Jews come together in Jerusalem. And so they attempt to kill him here. And so they ran together. They threw him out of the temple because, you know, we wouldn't want to defile the the temple by killing a man on temple grounds, right? They threw him out of the temple. They shut the doors. And they went about to kill him, verse 31. But thankfully for Paul's sake, that at the... The area just off of the temple grounds, you have the Antonia Fortress. This was a Roman fortress overlooking the Jewish temple because that was the center of a lot of hostility, a lot of issues. And so it housed a lot of soldiers. And so within just you know a couple hundred meters of where this was going on, there was a tower filled with Roman soldiers. They heard the commotion. They left the tower. And they came and saved Paul before he could be beat to death. Mm -hmm. And so whenever they heard the soldiers coming, in verse 32, they left beating Paul. And when the soldiers arrive there, they find a man that is beat and bloodied. And they immediately arrest the guy that's just been beat instead of the people that were beating him. See, their assumption is this guy must be a huge troublemaker. There must be something really wrong with this guy for the Jews to respond in the way that they have. And so they arrested Paul. They chained him up between two guards. And they tried asking the people, what in the world has this guy done that you hate him so much and you want to kill him? 
And it says in verse 34, some cried one thing and some another. And they couldn't know for certainty what he had done. Nobody knew there was confusion. It was mob mentality. Okay. And so a word of caution for us as human beings and as believers, we have to be careful about following the mob. In the day and hour we live in, there's plenty of social media, there's plenty of uh, television and news and talking heads and pundits and all these different things that are trying to uh, trying to bring about uh, an emotional response to the things that are going on in the world around us. And that's what they are dealing with here. They are dealing with an emotional response. They are taking the things that these people hold dear. They're taking some of their fears and some of their insecurities. They're bringing these all together. They're aiming them at one person, and they're saying, this guy is the enemy, and all of them are quick to just jump on the bandwagon. And so we must be very careful as believers because we are people that should be operating off of truth. We should value truth above pretty much everything. Because whenever we start getting emotional, whenever we start following into the bandwagon, whenever we just jump in to the latest mob or the latest fad or whatever, the latest trend that's going on, we end up doing stupid things. And there are plenty, we can, I hate to bring this up, but we can look back throughout all this stuff with COVID. We can look through some of the hot political uh, topics of the day with the transgenderism and uh, LGBT, all these different things. And these can be things that are extremely emotional and they whip up mob mentality in people. And we have to be careful as Christians that we are walking circumspectly. That means that we are paying attention to all things that are going on in us and around us and that we are making our decisions and we are determining our steps wisely. And that first and foremost, we are following after the Lord and not after the crowd. Right. Okay. And so it is a very, very easy to get sucked into this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the whole city of Jerusalem basically got sucked into this against Paul and it was all lies. What Paul was seeking to do, he was seeking to unite the people. He was seeking to do whatever he had to do to show respect to the Jewish people, to be able to uh, relate to them, to be able to, uh, in some way, to have an impact on them. Mm-hmm. Not to destroy them, but in a, instead he wanted to help them. Okay? So in a sense, it would be like uh, the doctor that come with the the treatment for your disease, right? And for you to attempt to kill him instead of allow him to help you, right? And so anyway, they were whipped into this frenzy. They wanted to kill him. None of them knew why they were even there. What is this all about? One cried one thing, one cried another. They didn't know. It was foolishness. But what they didn't know is they wanted to kill him. Verse 36, for the multitude of people followed after crying, away with him. They had a chant that unified them. Mm-hmm. If you ever see like some of these debates or some of these things that's going on in television, they'll have a chant. Yeah. If you try to speak, if you try to talk, if you try to reason with them, they'll shout you down. Yeah. Right? You've got this thing going on in Israel and Palestine right now. Uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And they'll just chant that over. They don't even know what it means. What they're saying whenever they chant that chant is they are looking for genocide. They're actually trying to do what they were accusing Paul of doing back here. Whenever they make that chant, they are saying all of Israel needs to be killed. And they don't even realize. They're like, oh, we're peaceful protesters. We are, you know, virtue. Anyway, so. So they are just caught up. And people all around this world are getting sucked into this narrative. And they have no clue why. They have no clue what their chant even means. They have no clue what they're saying. And they're getting sucked into it. Okay? And we need to be careful about that. Be aware about that. uh, And don't get caught up with the emotional mob. Okay? And so anyway, as this is all going on, it says that, uh, verse 37... Paul was being led to the cap, to the castle. By the way, in this, it says that the people were so angry and were so hostile toward Paul that, <coughs> excuse me, that the soldiers had to carry him up the steps. He couldn't even walk up the steps 
Part of it may have been because of how badly he was beaten, but part of it was because of the mob that was coming and the soldiers had to pick him up and carry him. Okay, so if you can picture this. And so as he's going, verse 37, uh, as he was being led into the castle, he said to the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art not thou that Egyptian which before these days madest an uproar and ledest out into the wilderness 4,000 men that were murderers? This gives us a little idea about how the, the centurions, how the soldiers were responding to Paul. They showed up here. They saw the Jews beating up this guy. Paul is an older man now. He has traveled a lot. He had been beaten several times, and now he was beaten again. He was bloody. He was filthy. He probably wouldn't look like much. Definitely wouldn't have looked like a dignified, respectable citizen. And so whenever the centurions, when the soldiers took him, they said he is just some, uh, some rebel. He is just some troublemaker. He is some, uh, uh, some sort of a... Uh, excuse me, uh, some sort of a political uh, insurgent, I guess we could say. They were equating Paul to a terrorist. And see, these, uh, these soldiers made assumptions about Paul. They said, are you not that Egyptian that stirred up strife and led 4,000 murderers out into the desert? But what it was that caught their attention is Paul spoke to them in Greek which was a common language at the time, but it was the language of the scholarly. It was the language of the, or of the refined. It was a respectable language, okay? And so whenever he heard Paul, which seemed to be a Jew or some kind of criminal or whatever, speaking in the language of dignity, of refinement, these kind of things, he says, you can speak Greek. And he was caught by this. And not just by the fact that he could speak Greek, but by his demeanor and by his tone with which he spoke to this soldier. Now, if you put yourself in Paul's position, how would you respond to the treatment that Paul just received? <laughs> Do you think that you would be treating the soldier respectively? Do you think that you would be uh, saying yes, sir, and no, sir? Do you think that you would be uh, being kind and courteous to this guy? Probably not. But Paul had walked with the Lord for many years. The Holy Spirit had done a work in him, and he manifested the fruit of the Spirit so that whenever everything around him was falling apart, whenever everybody else was emotional, whenever he was at basically at the point of the sword or the spear, he was able to still maintain self-control. He was still able to uh, not respond in haste or in uh, emotionalism and these kind of things. He was able to keep himself in control with this. And so anyway, as he speaks to this soldier, he gains the respect of this soldier to an extent because of the way that he has handled himself in this. Um, and this challenges us in the times whenever there is uh, disagreements in the times whenever there is uh, debate or argument or strife that happens, whenever maybe we are slandered or whenever we are mistreated or whenever we just disagree with someone, it challenges us to how do we respond, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. How do we respond in those times? Because Paul is a good example of responding as Christ did. I know a lot of times whenever we talk about how Christ responded and how, you know, he was beaten, his beard was plucked from him, how he's crucified and said, Father, we say, okay, well, he's God. Of course he can do that. Right? And so, yeah, we look at that and we're like, okay, yeah, but I'm not Jesus. I'm not God. I can't do that. But now we're looking at a human being. Right? Right. And so that brings the example a little closer to home. And we're, not, we're still not saying that Paul's going to be perfect. But at this time, he is allowing God to use him for God's glory. Right. And so it's unfortunate that he's here. It's unfortunate that the, the leaders of the church of Jerusalem has put him in this position. It's unfortunate 
that none of the church at Jerusalem has stood with him so far. Have you ever thought of that? Where were they at? Remember, James said there are thousands here in Jerusalem that fear God, that are saved, that are zealous of the law. And though there were thousands in Jerusalem, none of them came to Saul's or to, to Paul's aid, right? None of them came to Paul's aid here. Yeah. No problem. And so as all of this was going on, Paul, going back to Bar David's phrase here, Paul behaves himself wisely. Okay? He gains the respect of these guys, and he he asks him, he says, May I speak to thee? He says, just let me talk to you for just a second, because the guards have asked the, the mob, why are you doing this? They haven't asked Paul yet. And so Paul says, may I speak to you? And he says, you speak Greek? He says, yeah. And he says, I am a Jew. I'm of uh, the city of Tarsus, which was an important city at that time that was well-respected by Rome. And so in verse 40, he has given the opportunity to speak for himself. He's given the opportunity to address this mob that wants him dead. And so I, I challenged you there a minute ago, put yourself in Paul's position, and how would you respond? So now he has the opportunity to turn around and face this mob that's wanting him dead. What is your first words whenever you turn and you look at that mob, whenever they silence themselves, whenever you have a chance to speak for yourself, what's going to be the first thing that you say? You're probably going to try to defend yourself. You're probably going to try to shame them. Probably insult them. Right? What did I ever do to you? Isn't that going to be your response? It wasn't Paul's. And so as we're thinking about this and how we respond in these times, I want us to just look for just a few minutes about how Paul acted during this time. The things that we can point out about this. Because in the day and hour we live in, Though we have great freedom, though we have uh, the ability to meet together, that we have the ability to practice our faith as we uh, believe that we should, according to our conscience, uh, we're going to find as the days go by that those freedoms are going to be taken away from, that the things that we believe are going to become more and more offensive to the world that we live in because the world is getting further and further away from God, right? And we're seeing that happen in different places around the world, but we're even seeing it come a little bit closer to here uh, with all of these uh, uh, current fads and agendas and things that are happening. And so we're going to have to make a decision about where we're going to stand and how we're going to stand, right? And we've seen in recent times, and I won't bring up any names or specific occasions, but we've seen in recent times uh, Christians who have done this wrong, okay? But whenever we look at Paul, as he comes this time, he is arrested, he is getting ready to go to prison, all these things going on, but we find that Paul had done nothing wrong, either by God's laws or even by man's at that time. Now, we know that if man's laws go against God's laws, then we obey God's rather than men's, right? But Paul had broken no laws. He wasn't coming to be an offense. He wasn't coming to try to prove a point or try to make himself heard. He wasn't coming to, uh, he wasn't coming for a fight, okay? His motives were pure. Whenever he came, he was seeking to be a witness to the people. He was seeking to show them the love of God to point them to Christ, okay? He wasn't coming uh, with a martyr complex, though he would one day be martyred. He wasn't coming saying, I'm going to show them that they're wrong. But instead, he was coming and doing everything that he could to be a witness and a testimony to them. And as I said, he wasn't there looking for a fight. He wasn't there being offensive. Uh, he exhibited self-control and restraint when no one else did. If we want to be a testimony, if we want to be a witness for God, if we are going to 
take on some of society's ills, we better make sure that we are walking with God, that our motives are right, that we are walking according to his word, and that we are in control of ourselves. Because the easiest way for us to lose credibility and to lose our testimony is for us to allow our emotions to take over and allow our flesh to be in control and for us to lash out. Yeah. So he exhibited self-control and restraint even when no one else did. He was respectful of authority and he submitted to the process. That's a huge thing. Mm -hmm. We saw this in the States during the whole time of COVID that many Christians, many pastors, many churches thought that they had a mandate, thought that they had the ability to be jerks, right? To be uh, offensive, to cause problems just because they had the right to gather together. Y'all remember that from the news just not too long ago, right? Mm -hmm. And so they would take the verses that we, we better obey God rather than men, right? They would take those and say, we're going to meet together and you can't do anything about it. And they made themselves out as being martyrs, really. They were trying to stir up problems. They were basically taunting the authorities and the government, trying to make them come after them. And this isn't what Paul's doing. He's first and foremost, he's wanting to see people saved. He's wanting to be a witness. And then whenever they come after him, he responds appropriately, right? And so they arrest him. He doesn't fight against it. He's going with them along. He's speaking respectfully to him. He's saying, hey, can I, can I speak to you for just a minute? Not how dare you treat me this way. I'm going to take you to court. I'm going to sue you. But he's respecting the process as well. Because we are told in Scripture that there is no authority except that which comes from God. And that God hasn't given a us these man-made authorities to be tyrants to us, but they are there for our good. And that was even speaking of it whenever the Romans were in charge, which were not good people. And so we need to be subject to the higher powers here. And so he was respectful of authority, he submitted to the process, and he was more concerned for the souls of men than for his own comfort and for his vindication. And because of that, he got an audience with this group of people. Okay, And so I want to just briefly here, we don't have much time left, but I just want to briefly here in chapter 22, he ends up uh, being able to speak to this crowd, to this multitude that's before him. Come on. Come on. Uh, are we the right time? Or? Yeah, yeah, come on in. Sorry. Yeah, we're just finishing the first service. Go ahead and come in. Okay, so here in Acts chapter 22, Paul has the opportunity to address this mob that wants to kill him, okay? And he has done this by behaving himself wisely. And so whenever he begins to speak to them in chapter 22, he says, Men, brother, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue uh, to them, they kept the more silence and he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders from whom I received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. So what Paul begins with in this passage, and I'm, I'm going to hasten in this because we're out of time, but whenever he begins to speak to the people, they think that he has been slandering the Jewish people, that he has been speaking against the people, against their religion, against their laws, that he has been raising up people against the Jewish people, basically, and whenever he begins to speak to them, they hear him speaking in their language, in their dialect, exactly like they are. And they say, okay, hold on for a second. We were expecting this guy to be an anti-Semite. We were expecting him to be someone else. We were expecting you know, him to come out and, and like a Nazi or something. 
but he speaks to them respectfully and he introduces himself, my men, brother, and fathers. This is respectful language that he's using toward them. And he says, I was born in Tarsus. I was raised in Jerusalem. I studied under your revered rabbi, Gamaliel. He said, I studied under him. I was taught all of these things. I know your laws. I know, and I was very zealous of it. In fact, I did the very same thing that you are now doing. I persecuted Christians. I went and I tried to do away with Christianity altogether, uh, trying to silence the believers. And he says, if you don't believe me, ask the priests that are here in the city because I worked with them. They gave me letters. I was their boy. Right? So why is he going through all of this? He is not giving a defense to himself. He is building a bridge. Yeah. Okay? These people are resistant to the gospel. They are resistant to <laughs> Paul, to his message, to everything that he's doing. And so Paul is saying, I was just like you. I understand the way you think. I understand the, the things that you're going through. I was just like you. So much so that I was killing Christians. I was working for the Sanhedrin. All these things were going on. And they were looking at Paul and they're like, okay. So apparently he's not what we were being told that he was. But what happened? What made the difference between where he was and where he is now? And so that gives Paul an entrance. He is related to them. He has piqued their curiosity, and now he is going to be able to tell them what has caused him to go from a riotous mob, a persecutor of the Christians, to the apostle of the Gentiles. What was it that made the difference in his life? And so he begins telling his testimony. He tells them, I was a persecutor of Christians. I was a hater of Jesus, but... I met Jesus. There was a time whenever I was going in this direction and God stopped me. He struck me down in my path and he made me realize that I was going the wrong way. He made me realize that I was sinful and I was offensive against God and he changed my direction and gave me a new way to go. And he preaches the gospel to the people who want to kill him. See, from the beginning to the end of what Paul is doing here, he is doing everything in order to be a witness, a testimony to Jesus Christ. And so even whenever he has an opportunity to condemn those that are condemning him, whenever he has a chance to try to vindicate himself, whenever he has a chance to uh, try to lift himself up, he doesn't do that. He preaches the gospel to them. And I think so often we get this all mixed up and we get this so much about our rights, about our comfort, about what we want, about clearing our name, mm -hmm. about getting our message across yeah. that we forget that we are first and foremost representatives of Christ yeah. and that there is no better, no better way that we can spend our time, no better uh, thing that we can use our opportunities for than to communicate the truth of God's word, then we can tell people about how to be saved. And I think a lot of times, too, we underestimate the power of our testimony. We underestimate the fact that if this is the way that God came to us and led us to himself, it's also going to communicate how others can be led to him. Right. He says, I once was where you're at. I was once going contrary to God's will and God's word. God got a hold of me. He changed me, and he completely gave me an entire new purpose. He gave me a new message. He gave me a new desire. He transformed my life. He changed my life. And so for the sake of time, I've got to wrap up here. But as he's going through all this, he gets to the place. He says, I tried to be a witness to the people at Jerusalem, but God says these people here are not going to hear you. They're not going to listen to you. And so I've got another purpose for you. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And as soon as he used the word Gentiles, that set the mob off again. Okay? And so that was the end of his message. They weren't going to listen anymore because he got to the place of their, uh, of their prejudice. 
He got to the thing that offended them the most. They didn't care if every Gentile uh, was left to eternity. They didn't want a single one of them to be saved. They didn't want to hear that God loved the Gentiles also. And so then they said once again, Paul is worthy to die. And so they rejected the gospel, but they heard it, right? And so if we are going to be offensive to the world, to the people around us, the people who uh, we come in contact with, let it be that we offend them with the truth spoken in love. Let it be that we offend them by sharing the gospel with them, not by being stupid, not by intentionally being offensive. Because there is a God that loves them, there is a God that died for them, a God that wants to save them, and all this other stuff, honestly, it doesn't matter. If they realize that there is an eternity ahead of them, if they realize there is a God that loves them, and they are willing to put their faith and trust in Him, God will straighten them out after that. Okay? And so first and foremost, we preach Christ. Okay? So does anyone have any comments or any questions on what we looked at this morning? You look like you do, Peter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad somebody will. I mean, huh? I'm glad somebody does. Yeah, there's a the, the answer to Paul. I have two questions, by okay. the way. You're fine. <laughs> the reason, okay, when they when Paul get to Jerusalem mm-hmm. and they meet with the elders. And it seems like, to me, he might be selling out his priority mm-hmm. in order for suit the 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 the, the, the religious leaders the religious leaders at the time mm-hmm. because why will Paul being Paul planting all these churches where because this is such a long history that I have mm-hmm. but have to submit himself to go through ritual that he knew he's supposed not to go through in in order to fit some some idea or to bring peace between the Gentiles and, 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 and the Christians and mm-hmm. that the first question I don't know if I made it clear. And then the, the second one will be is prosecuted, he's been beaten with different people, this mock justice mm-hmm. that came after him. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he have a chance to give his, 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 his side of story, he starts giving his past. Mm-hmm. Because that's what I'm getting here, especially in, 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 in verse 22. Mm-hmm. He starts giving his past. And this seems to be like it's long years ago. Mm-hmm to where we are right now, because if he will give his past how we used to prosecute people, mm-hmm. how we, uh, Christian particularly, and how he used to, how he met Jesus, mm-hmm. it, it gave me some sense of, there the have to be something behind why he doesn't just, and that is me, why he doesn't just give his account as the Apostle Paul, because he was Apostle at the time, he mm-hmm. put a lot of, of, of testimony built upon mm-hmm. him. Why doesn't he give his account? Okay, I'm standing here giving you what I have. Mm-hmm. Then going back, start with his past. I used to be this. I used mm-hmm. to be that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first question is... Um, why would Paul, being the Apostle Paul, and all of the great things that he has accomplished, yes. why would he submit himself to the Jews at Jerusalem? It seems like he's going from here down to here, right? Yes. Humility. I mean, that's that's really the answer, is that Paul didn't see himself as the Apostle Paul. He didn't come into town saying, look at everything that I have done, bow at my feet because I'm the great Apostle and church planter. He says, I'm a vessel whom Christ has used. And so he's willing to submit himself to Christ. He's willing to submit himself to the Jerusalem elders. He's willing to humble himself in all these different ways because he is following the example of Christ. Because look at Christ. 
Christ is God who condescended to men of low estate. He left the glories of heaven to be born of a virgin in a stable, right? To live as the son of a carpenter, to be in poverty, to dwell on this earth as, uh, he says, foxes have holes, the birds have nests. I don't even have a place. He was homeless. And so to go from the creator of all creation to homelessness, destitution, poverty, itinerant preacher, why did he do that? For the salvation of souls. Why would Paul, the great church planter and apostle, why would he come and subject himself to that kind of stuff at Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. Salvation of souls. He was following a Christ-like pattern. Okay, let, let me put this way. I think maybe I'm getting lost a bit. Yes, subjection is there. He, want, he, he was built in the bridge between the Gentiles mm-hmm. and Christian, and um, Jews at the time to come together. Mm-hmm. But why did you have to go such ritual that is, is unclean that if we can read through? Mm-hmm. It's like telling myself, I believe in sisters, just putting in my culture, mm-hmm. I believe that sisters. I believe we need to serve them in the certain way, mm-hmm. which I know it's it's differently from scripture, and go back, do the same thing. Well, see the the things that they were having him to do, mm-hmm. they were not sinful. They were not against scripture. They just, at that point in time, they were meaningless. Okay. And so Paul was looking at it like, well, I can keep your. Um, your meaningless rituals and ceremonies if that means I'm going to be a more effective witness. And so today we still have things that are preferences, that are meaningless rituals or traditions that aren't necessarily against the Bible. They're not against Scripture, but they're not mandated by Scripture either. And so I might go to a, a different church, a different country, and they do things differently. It's like, well, you know, I don't see why they do that, but while I'm here, okay. I'll go ahead and subject myself to that. Okay? Yeah. And so they were willing to do that. So that was that was the first question. The second question, let me remember. <laughs> the second question, it was about him giving the, 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 okay. the history, yeah. the past history. Yeah, why did he go... Why did he go through his whole testimony? Okay. Well, whenever he stood before them, his his top priority all along was uh, the salvation of souls. His top priority was getting the gospel out. And so rather than coming up there and saying, um, I've been preaching the gospel to all of the Gentiles and they're mad because of that, uh, the people that were before him had rejected Christ. They had rejected the gospel. They... Uh, it wasn't between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians at this time. It was between the Christians and the Jews. Okay? And so as he stood before them, he went through the story of how he he had been where they were as Jews that hated Christians that rejected Christ to now preaching the gospel of Christ. And so what he was doing was... Um, making a way that he would relate to them and bring them along on the journey, hoping that they can see uh, that Christ was the Savior, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that they would believe as well. And so he is preaching the gospel to them, and his method is to find some common ground between them. So the idea behind that is, um, for us as Christians, there are certain people that we're going to be able to connect with because of uh, common experiences. Okay? Um you might have someone who is saved out of uh, drug addiction and God does a miracle in their life, gives them freedom from the addiction and transforms their life. They can go to the attic now and say, let me tell you what God did for me. Uh, and they can tell the stories. You know, I was shooting up in the alleys. I was homeless. I've lost my family. You know, I've lost my health. I have a, a, a criminal background, all these different things. But, this event happened. I heard the gospel at this time. I believed, and the Lord saved me, and he began to transform me again. And they could share that with those people, 
and that would have a huge impact on that drug addict. Whereas maybe for, for me to go and say, okay, I was raised in a Christian home. I was taking church. For, you know, they can't relate to that. Paul is bringing common ground. He's like, I was where you are now, and God has done this. And so his desire was for all of these people who wanted to see him dead to take the same journey as he did. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go ahead and we'll we'll take a break. I know we're running a little bit behind, but we'll take a break and we'll get into our next service. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you for being so good to us. We thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would be with our time and our fellowship together. And I just pray for your blessings upon the preaching service here in just a moment. I ask you to be with all those uh, who are missing this morning, Lord. I pray that you would be with those who are working, those who are traveling and things. Lord, we ask your blessings of one of our visitors, our guests that are here. We thank you so much for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.